Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Green markets were showing some downward movement this week, the first week of the new year. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. We'll speak with PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo about how the grain markets were going this week. CP Rail says it's gradually increasing the amount of grain moved with its 8,500-foot high-efficiency product trains, which were introduced in 2018. We'll hear from Jared Farmer, who is CP Rail's Managing Director of Canadian Grain Sales. The East Central Research Foundation farm near Yorkton has completed another study. Research coordinator Mike Hall was checking to see if oats were responding to higher levels of macronutrients. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain markets were showing some downward movement this week, the first week of the new year. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo says canola has fallen $4 a metric ton, while spring wheat is down 20 cents a bushel for the week. Starting off on the canola front, March canola declined approximately $4 a ton, trading fairly sideways here to start off the new year. Today we're sitting approximately up $5 a ton at eight seventy one. On the March Minneapolis wheat contract, uh, a little bit different of a story, down approximately 20 cents a bushel. Today, we are up about 5 cents, sitting at 9.14. So this week, and in particular here today, today was an important day on the economic side of the world with job numbers coming out of the U.S. and Canada. In Canada here, quite a bit better than expected with 104,000 jobs gain actually that is again better than the 130,000 that was kind of expected as well as the U.S. job numbers were quite a bit better than expected as well too so that's where the U.S. markets and Canadian markets on the stock side are pointing up that's helping support all commodities here today but when looking specifically at the wheat market here again we saw a bit of a decline kind of this week of that 20 cents a bushel there has been a bit of a strong advance in the U.S. dollar right now here this week. U.S. wheat continues to struggle against the Black Sea wheat offers on the world export market, and that's kind of helped pressure the U.S. wheat market down. And actually, on top of aggressive exports from Russia, European wheat exports are are about 6% higher than last season. So, as well as Australia, which is, again, a top grain exporter, shipped a monthly record of uh, 2.18 million tons of grain in December. So, again, a little bit more of a negative trend on the wheat front here, but we are starting to see a bit of a bottoming on that. He explains why canola is trading down. Well, that's where, you know, I wouldn't maybe use the word pressuring just because 
$4 compared to, to be honest, how much volatility we've seen here the last year isn't very much. But we've seen specifically more on the soy markets moving around quite a bit because there is uncertainty over how much rain Argentina may receive next week has helped to keep traders kind of selling here right now. It will take really follow-through rain events after mid-next week in order to expect any easing of the drought situation. So right now, again, dry conditions are expected to continue in Argentina until the middle of next week. Rain with the front is expected to be isolated, but temperatures are lower. So again, if the soy markets want to stay up a little bit, a little bit more positive. I think that could kind of keep canola at least stronger for now too. Bacallo offers his price outlook for next week and beyond. Well, next week, I would say traders want to see wheat hopefully form a bit of a bottom here, maybe continue back up higher like we did see the following week. And on the canola front here, that 900 mark is really that magic number on that higher end. We got up to about 880 last week, but haven't broken above that. So that might be a uh, secondary resistance. Adam Piccolo is a commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. It's time now for the Beef and Forage Report, and that's a presentation of Lane Realty. Beef and Forage Report. The Beef Cattle Research Council's Future Farm Scenarios has looked at the five-year financial impact of investing in rotational grazing management or tightening up the calving season. Drawing on findings from the Canadian Cow-Calf Cost of Production Network, the Scenarios exercise looked at where to invest in infrastructure to best improve profitability. For both questions, more fences or a tighter calving season, the answer on what was worthwhile was highly influenced by the existing setup and scale of the operation. For the calving scenario, the longer and more drawn out the existing calving season, the more profit could be gained by keeping the window to a three-cycle maximum. That's 70% calving in the first cycle, 20% in the second cycle, and 10% in the third cycle. The final outcomes range from just $5 per cow improvement measured through weaning weight increase to $30 per cow and was achieved over five years of breeding season and heifer management. The grazing scenario is somewhat more complex. The scenario included purchasing temporary fencing to increase paddock number and assumed a 10% increase in feed production with rotational management. In five years, the scenario suggests that larger herd size can better shoulder the upfront cost of the fencing system. Only half of those that participated in this simulated scenario had paid off the investment. However, for smaller operations, other considerations include the possibility of selling some of the increased forage growth as hay. Those herds with higher existing feed costs saw a faster return on investment. And that's today's Beef and Forage Report. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. John Deere unveiled a new sensor-based starter fertilizer placement technology for planters 
as part of the company's keynote address at the CES 2023 Tech Industry Show in Las Vegas yesterday. The exact shot system is designed to send out precise small bursts of starter fertilizer onto individual seeds as they are planted, rather than applying a continuous flow of liquid fertilizer in the seed row. The technology is designed to work at planting speeds of up to 10 miles per hour. Deer says exact shot will allow farmers to reduce the amount of seed-placed fertilizer by more than 60% and that it could reduce the use of starter fertilizer across the U.S. corn crop by more than 93 million gallons annually. The company also unveiled a new electric excavator powered by a Chrysal battery at CES, which it says will provide construction workers and road builders with lower daily operating costs reduced job site noise, enhanced machine reliability, and zero emissions. Millets will have time in the international spotlight in 2023. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations declared this year as the International Year of Millets. Millets can be used as livestock feed to make alcohol, bread, beer, cereal, and other items. In Canada, millets are usually grown in Ontario and in Western Canada. Proso millet arrived in Canada in the 17th century and was used as a forage crop in the early 1900s. In June of 2015, the B.C. government suggested millet as an alternative forage crop when irrigation water is limited, saying the crop has a high drought tolerance, a low-medium water use, and high yield potential. Investigators are sifting through the debris left by a barn fire that killed thousands of hogs earlier this week in Albany, Prince Edward Island. The fire department in Borden, Carleton was called to the scene Wednesday night and four other fire departments responded. Two buildings were destroyed and none of the animals could be saved because the fire spread quickly. The PEI Hog Marketing Board is putting together an emergency response committee to help the business. Oregon's Attorney General says Bayer has agreed to pay $698 million to end a lawsuit over PCB pollution associated with products made by Monsanto, the agriculture giant it now owns. Ellen Rosenblum told Oregon Department of Justice that Monsanto knew the substance was toxic. Bayer says the settlement fully resolves Oregon's claims and releases the company from future liability. The statue of a 19th century Northern California rancher and meatpacking magnate has been decapitated. That has left investigators scratching their heads to find a motive behind the vandalism of the statue of Charles Swanston. The severed head was found on the ground nearby in Sacramento's William Land Park. Swanston was an early Sacramento pioneer and settler who became a rancher and started a meatpacking business that made him rich. And that's the Ag Review portion of our program. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back right after this. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's cloudy and minus 16 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. 
CP Rail says it's gradually increasing the amount of grain moved with its 8,500-foot high-efficiency product trains, which were introduced in 2018. The so-called HEP trains are used at elevators that can load the cars in 16 hours or less and are being shipped to a facility with that same capability. Jared Farmer is CP Rail's Managing Director of Canadian Grain Sales. Through the loading process, the locomotives stay with the train. Our crew pulls up with the train, pulls it off the main line, leaves it with the power. The elevator crew gets on. They load the train with our power. When they're done in 16 hours, our crew comes back, gets on the train, does the safety inspection, and they depart. Farmer says there are several advantages. Obviously for the shipper, they can use our locomotives to load. They don't need locomotives at the elevator for themselves. Secondly, when you keep the locomotives attached to the cars, the locomotives, you can keep the air in the cars essentially instead of when you remove the locomotives, the air pressure obviously is gone and then you have to uh, pressure them back up. So this is a significant benefit in the cold winters we have in Western Canada. Keeping the air on the cars and keeping the pressure up allows the train to depart more quickly. The HEP trains are improving rail car cycle times. With the 8,500-foot HEP trains, we're actually seeing cycles as good as uh, seven days to Vancouver, full cycle. You know, in the old model, the typical 112 model was 10 to 11 days. And as, as little as, say, 10 to 15 years ago, those cycles, we were happy if it was 18 to 21 days. And Farmer was asked about how well the HEP trains operate under very cold conditions. It depends on the level of cold, and we've actually come up with some really fantastic technologies over the last few years for monitoring track temperatures. So we actually have devices by which we monitor temperature at track level. It's not like taking the temperature from the Weather Channel. It's right at track level so that we can be in the prairies looking out into the mountains and determining whether trains need to be shortened. Now, with the power configuration on these 8,500-foot trains, we have gone through full winters without shortening them because of the power configuration at the front, middle, and at the end and keeping that air pumped up. So trains do get shortened. It depends on the level of cold that we're experiencing in certain areas and we will actually shorten trains before we get into those specifically cold areas in order to keep the operation fluid and we're getting more and more sophisticated at uh, putting that on it you know that shortening and taking it off as necessary to, to move as many cars as possible. Jared Farmer with CP Rail was speaking at the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan annual general meeting last month. Livestock market conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 156.77. That's down 57. April live cattle trading at 160.65, down 62. March feeder cattle trading at 185.42, down 112. April feeder cattle trading at 189.62, down 90. February lean hogs trading at 80.35, that's down 217. April lean hogs trading at 90.12, down 140. And that's the livestock market conditions. 
Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back in 30 seconds time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. The East Central Research Foundation farm near Yorkton has completed another study. Research coordinator Mike Hall was checking to see if oats were responding to higher levels of macronutrients. When we poll farmers, many of them are applying 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre. They cite concerns with lodging, maturity, and low test weights as reasons for keeping the nitrogen rates down. Those are all valid concerns, and ultimately the producer will judge those risks based on his own field experience. But more recent research by Bill May with Agriculture Canada out of Indian Head and ourselves here at Yorkton would suggest that 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre might be better unless growing conditions are poor or the field has high residual levels of soil nitrogen. Our current suggestion assumes soil nitrogen is close to around 30 pounds of nitrogen per acre or less. This is Camden Oats from Yorkton in 2019. In response to added nitrogen, the blue line represents increasing yield and the orange line represents decreasing test weights. If test weights fall below the green arrow, which is marking 245 grams per half a liter, then oats would receive a discount. If the test weight falls below 230 grams per half a liter, marked by the purple arrow, then oats would be rejected. You can see test weights are being pushed into the rejection range with high rates of nitrogen. We consistently see Camden getting into trouble with test weights before a variety like Summit does based on our past work. However, half the oats accepted by grain millers are Camden, and they rarely have to reject Camden based on a low test weight. So why the disconnect? Well, it's been suggested to me that producers have higher test weights because they will blow more light seed out the back of their combines than we typically do in our plot work. This may be true, but Camden consistently has a lower test weight compared to a variety like Summit. Unfortunately, Summit is less resistant to lodging than Camden, which is also a very important factor to consider when choosing an oat variety. When basing economic returns on $6 per bushel for oat and $1.33 per pound for nitrogen, the most economic rate of nitrogen was at 90 pounds per acre. Here's Summit. Note the test weights are higher compared to Camden. They don't even get close to the rejection level regardless of nitrogen rate. Assuming no discount for test weights, the most economic rate of N was 94 pounds per acre in this case. Let's say you want to fertilize at 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre, but someone has asked you to reduce your nitrogen applications by 30%. Well, that would drop your rate down to 63 pounds per acre and would reduce your net revenue by $15 per acre. But maybe you are more risk adverse for fear of lodging and or poor growing conditions. In this case, you may typically put down 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Now, if someone asks you to reduce your rate by 30% to 42 pounds of N per acre, this will cost you $24 per acre in net return. Now, these economic consequences are for a responsive site with only 35 pounds of nitrogen in the soil. And all our sites certainly aren't like this every year. Here's Summit on 60 pounds per acre of background nitrogen during a drought. The most economic rate of N was 24 pounds of N per acre. Note how high the test weights are during the drought. They're sailing above the discount level. So I thought, maybe drought is good for test weight. Well, here's Summit the following year on 92 pounds per acre of soil N during another drought, and test weights are in the discount range. 
Well, test weights typically decrease as yield is increased with added N, I have no idea how environmental conditions affect test weight. So this is my past experience that led us to develop the next study for discussion. Are oats responding to higher rates of applied macronutrients? Not just N, but P, K, and S. The study was conducted at four agri-arm locations on the east side of the province in 2021 and 22. The objectives of this study were to compare the yield response of oat to a historical recommendation of 60N versus a more recent recommendation of 90N. We also wanted to determine the relative importance of combining phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur with these different N recommendations in eastern Saskatchewan. The trial was designed as a factorial with two factors. The first factor was the level of PKNS, and the second factor was rate of nitrogen. There are four levels of PKS. We start with a full rate of PKS, which starts with 40 pounds of P2O5 per acre, 15 pounds of K2O per acre, and 10 pounds of sulfur per acre. Each macronutrient is then removed independently to determine the response to sulfur, potassium, and phosphorus. Each level of PKS was evaluated at three rates of nitrogen, which were 17, 60, and 90 pounds per acre. A no-fertilizer check was also added to the treatment list, but it's only there for reference as it cannot be included in the factorial analysis. The variety used in this study was Arborg. I'm going to show you eight figures like this one, one for each site year. The blue bars are oat yield in bushels per acre and the yellow bars are oat test weight in grams per half a litre. On the left is a green and red arrow indicating the discount and rejection level for oat test weight. The group of bars on the left are showing you the main effects for the level of PKNS and the group on the right are the main effects for the rate of nitrogen. In the bottom left hand corner are soil test results for each site for your reference. At Indian Head in 21, yields were decent and significantly increased with added nitrogen up to 90 pounds per acre since the soil nitrogen was very low. In contrast, test weight was reduced by increasing N but was still well above the rejection level. Compared to the full PKS check, none of the limited treatments were significantly different. In other words, there was no significant responses to P, K, or S. However, the P limited treatment was lowest yielding. The soil test indicated soil levels for P were medium. A lack of a response to S and K was not surprising because the soil test levels for K were high and cereals tend to be much less responsive to sulfur than canola. Test weights were unaffected by the level of P, K, and S. At Melfort in 21, yield significantly increased in response to added nitrogen up to 60 pounds per acre. Test weight decreased in response to increasing N, but still managed to stay well above the discount level. A statistically significant and strong yield decline occurred when phosphorus was removed. The response to P is not surprising since the soil tested low for phosphorus. Limiting sulfur did not affect yield, and limiting K resulted in a significant increase. It's unclear why that occurred. While there were definitely large numeric differences in test weight between the levels of PK and S, none were statistically significant. At Rivers in 21, yields were relatively low, but significantly increased up to 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Test weights were low and were drastically reduced by increasing nitrogen into the rejection levels. While not statistically significant, there was a relatively large decline in yield when phosphorus was removed. Not surprising as soil P was very low. No yield loss occurred when either S or K were removed. In fact, yields increased numerically.
At Yorkton in 21, yields were very low due to drought and background soil nitrogen was extremely high. As a result, there was no yield response to added N. Test weights were very low, well into the rejection range, regardless of nitrogen rate. While not statistically significant, removing P fertilizer resulted in a yield reduction, as soil P was low. Removing either sulfur or potassium resulted in a significant yield loss. This was a bit of a surprise since the soil test indicated high levels for these macronutrients, and the yield potential of the oats was low because of the drought. At Indian Head in 22, oat yields were very responsive to added nitrogen as the site had very low levels of soil N. Increasing N pushed test weights into the discount range. Yield was not responsive to any of the other micronutrients, not even phosphorus, which was at low levels based on soil testing. At Melford in 22, oat yield significantly responded to added nitrogen, despite very high reserves of soil N. This was likely due to the very high yield potential, almost 200 bushels per acre at this site. Test weights were reduced by increasing N, but remained well above discount levels regardless of N rate. There were no significant yield responses to added P, K, or S. However, yield was reduced numerically when P was removed. At Red Version 22, yield significantly increased in response to 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre, and test weight was reduced to just above the discount range. No yield responses to P, K, or S were observed. Lodging was starting to become a bit of an issue by 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre. Despite heavy hail received on June 23rd at Yorkton in 22, the crop recovered and yielded pretty respectable, averaging 140 bushels per acre. However, there wasn't a yield response to added nitrogen as soil N reserves were very high and hail would have reduced yield potential still by about 20 to 30 percent. Increasing nitrogen pushed test weights into the discount range, but they're still well above the rejection level. No significant yield responses to P, K, and S were detected. However, the K limited treatment was numerically lower yielding. So let's put some economics to all this. This table shows the economic value per acre of increasing nitrogen above 17 pounds per acre. Calculations are based on $6 per bushel of oat and an end price of $1.33 per pound, taken from the Saskatchewan 2022 Crop Planning Guide. These values assume oats were never discounted for a low test weight. However, values in red had test weights in the rejection range, and values in green are in the discount range. These values may not have been rejected or discounted in reality, as producers may blow more light seed out the back of the combine than we do in plot work. Now, we were trying to demonstrate that an N recommendation of 90 pounds per acre was more economical than the old recommendation of 60 pounds of N per acre. Both of these recommendations were assuming there were about 30 pounds of nitrogen per acre in the soil. But the background N in the soil varied far more than this in this study. In 2021, soil reserves of nitrogen were high to very high at Melfort, Redverse, and Yorkton. And yield potentials were low at Redverse and particularly low at Yorkton due to drought. Economically, no more than 17 pounds of nitrogen per acre were needed at these locations. At Indian Head, 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre was the most economical as background N was very low. In 2022, yield potentials were much higher. 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre was the most economic rate at Indian Head, which again had very low background reserves of nitrogen. 
However, 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre was the, also the most economic rate at Melfort, despite an extremely high reserve of soil nitrogen. This occurred because Melfort had a particularly high yield potential. At Redverse, the most economic rate was 60 pounds of nitrogen per acre, and only 17 pounds of nitrogen per acre was required at Yorkton. Again, Yorkton had a very high reserve of soil in, and its yield potential was reduced by hail. Numerically, there were a few sites that had positive returns from applying either P, K, or S. The low number of sites adequately responding to K was not particularly surprising to me because all soils tested high for this nutrient. A lack of responses to S also wasn't particularly surprising as cereals are much less responsive to S than canola. I was expecting more positive returns from the addition of phosphorus based on the soil tests. However, even at medium levels of soil P, there's only a 50% chance of observing a response to added P. Although sites were relatively unresponsive to added P, it is still important to maintain or increase residual levels of soil P in order to maximize yield potential. Past study has found yield on soils testing low for phosphorus cannot be maximized by applying high rates of seed place P in season. To maximize yield, soil reserves of P must be maintained near 15 parts per million as plants obtain a substantial proportion of their P requirement from the entire soil volume they occupy. In other words, crops respond to both P fertilizer and background P fertility. Conclusions if background soil nitrogen is 30 pounds per acre or less and growing conditions are good, 90 pounds of nitrogen per acre can be the most economic rate. However, considerably less nitrogen was required at sites that were dry and or had high reserves of soil nitrogen. This illustrates the importance of soil testing when determining rates. Lodging was never an issue in our study, but our trials are not typically grown in field depressions. Lodging will be a greater risk on a variable landscape, and producers will assess their lodging risk based on field knowledge. Variable rate N could help manage this issue. Some yield responses to added P, K, and S were detected in this study, but they weren't usually large. Added P would be the most important of the three for oats, and soil P levels should be maintained near 15 parts per million to maximize yield potential. Test weight was consistently reduced with added nitrogen, but effects of P, K, and S were not frequent or consistent. In addition to ADOPT funding and SAS goats, I'd also like to thank grain millers who often do some seed testing for us for free. That's Mike Hall. He is the research coordinator at the East Central Research Foundation Farm near Yorkton. It's time now for the Commodities Update. It's a presentation of Lane Realty. When it's time to sell the farm, call Lane Realty, your trusted and experienced farmland real estate company. To include your property for showings, call 620-7260 or visit lanerealty.com. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading up across the board this hour. March canola trading at 869.50, up $4.20. May canola trading at 866.70, up $4.10. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 903 per bushel, that's down 6 cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 833 and a half, 
down six and a quarter cents. March Chicago wheat trading at seven forty four and three quarters, down two cents. March corn trading at six fifty four and a half, up one and three quarters of a cent. March soybeans trading at fourteen ninety four and a half, down twenty three and three quarters of a cent. March oats trading at three forty five per bushel, down three quarters of a cent. And that's the commodities update. The final weather statistics have been tabulated for 2022 by Environment Canada meteorologist Terry Lang. It turned out to be another dry year over much of Saskatchewan, but the annual temperatures were not too far off the long-term average. For the most part, it did come out to be more on the colder side uh, of things for you know most places. But they were sort of the rankings were kind of more middle of the pack, or maybe the top third for the coldest. So not you know nothing really stood out except for Osteo Old Key Lake in northern Saskatchewan, which we know is is a really cold spot. Uh, they had their fifth coldest year on uh, on record, but they have also a pretty short uh, period of record as well. She notes some parts of Saskatchewan were very dry in 2022. Yeah, really dry for some spots. Key Lake, LaRange, and Saskatoon with its uh, fourth driest year on record. And that's 115 years worth of record. So that's fairly significant. And I think uh, lots of folks uh, could tell you that it was pretty dry. Southwest continues to be dry. Swift Current with their 14th driest year on record. So keeping with that dry trend, the exception was over in that southeast corner of the province that got hit by those you know sort of consecutive Colorado lows they came in with uh, a wetter year for sure. Lang says 2022 was the latest in a number of very dry years in Saskatchewan. Uh, Certainly we've had some dry years in a row and uh, that's unfortunate. Kind of the way the atmosphere wants to go and especially when it comes to like the thunderstorms and such it can be so hit and miss. Uh, You know we really need those organized systems to come through and, and dump more of a general rain or a general snow. Terry Lang is an Environment Canada meteorologist based in Saskatoon. Farm Bulletin Board. The Saskatchewan Chamber of Commerce is hosting the first ever Food, Fuel and Fertilizer Business Summit. This unique event takes place February 14th and 15th at Prairieland Park in Saskatoon. The summit is being put on in partnership with the Manitoba, Alberta, and British Columbia Chambers of Commerce. The summit is about positioning Western Canada as a major powerhouse in the global economy, especially as it relates to food, fuel, and fertilizer. Businesses across Saskatchewan will benefit through increased jobs and the need for goods and services. Over the two days, the advantage Western Canada has will be showcased as its capacity to engage in the global economy. The Business Summit will also identify opportunities for investment attraction, trade, and attracting global brands. The event will also be used to create a Western Canadian network to develop a plan for global positioning. So once again, that's coming up. February 14th and 15th at Prairie Land Park in Saskatoon. It's the Food, Fuel and Fertilizer Business Summit. And that's all the time we have for today's Farm Bulletin Board. 
It's time now to check the GX94 precision weather forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions. A fog advisory remains in effect. For today, cloud and fog early, then turning to partly sunny. Winds south-southeast at 10 to 20 and a high of minus 12 degrees. For tonight, partly cloudy. Winds south-southeast at 10 to 20. A low of minus 15, then rising. For tomorrow, sunny. Winds southwest at 10 to 20. A high of minus 2, a low of minus 7. For Sunday, partly to mainly sunny, a light wind, and a high of minus 6. For Monday, a 40% chance of early flurries, then partly sunny, a high of minus 8. And Tuesday, a 40% chance of light snow and flurries late, a high of minus 7. In the Paw and Show Lake Russell, as well as Dauphin and Brandon, it's minus 13 degrees. Swan River and Roblin, minus 16. Show Lake Russell, minus 15. Regina and Saskatoon, minus 17. Hudson Bay, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, minus 15. Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington, minus 16. The Yorkton, Melville region has a cloudy sky, a south-southwest wind at 9 kilometers an hour. 86% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 16 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 22 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again on Monday at 1215 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.